You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. When home invasions targeting Asian immigrants in South Seattle began in June of this year, they didn't make local headlines. In fact, it was months before the Seattle Police Department even called public attention to the crimes. And Asian community members say guidance from the police for avoiding future burglaries was unhelpful. A new investigation by KUOW looks into who was attacked and who's been arrested and why these stories were kept in the dark for so long. Joining me now are investigative reporter Ashley Haruko and race and identity reporter Gustavo Segredo. Thank you so much for being here, both of you. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. So, Ashley, I want to start with the story of a yellow house in South Seattle. What happened there on June 7th? Yeah, so it's the middle of the night and a group of masked men, you know, they break into this house where inside Xiao sleeps deeply in her bedroom on the second floor. She was startled awake by a loud sound and she becomes worried, you know, that her husband, who has Parkinson's disease and is sleeping in a nearby room, has fallen off his bed. So as she's stepping out of her bedroom to investigate the sound, she comes face to face with the masked man who is pointing this gun at her head. And this man, you know, ultimately leads her to her, her husband's bedroom. She remembers seeing her husband there laying in his bed and another man is pointing this gun at his chest. Mm-hmm. And these burglars, they tell her she needs to open the safe and if she doesn't right away, they're going to kill them. So she opens the safe and these burglars took off with money and jewelry. Oh, it's just horrifying that the experience that you describe in your story. Ashley, tell me about the victims, Xiao and her husband. Who are they and what do we know about why they were targeted? So Xiao and her husband are an older couple. Like I said, her husband has Parkinson's disease and they live in a suburb south of Seattle. We know that their profile, being older Asian Americans, is a common profile when it comes to the victims of this cluster of violent home invasions that occurred in and around Seattle at this time. It's hard to say for certain why this couple was targeted, but we know there's a stereotype that this community of people has, which is that they're less likely to be armed and less likely to be confrontational. This was just one in a string of at least 14 break-ins experienced by Asian community members in South Seattle this summer. But you report it took months before the police publicly highlighted this pattern and it made media headlines. Ashley, why do you think it took so long? You know, this exact question actually came up during the first press conference on these home invasions. And Seattle police said at the time in June and July, there weren't enough cases to establish that there was a pattern among these crimes. Um, But as soon as they saw more, they, you know, kind of brought it forward and uh, held this press conference and put it out on their blotter. But at the same time, what we were hearing from sources within SPD is that there is a sense of disorganization around these the investigations of these crimes and also this general feeling that this has happened before and this wasn't anything new. Hmm. Gustavo, how did that lengthy silence impact trust in Seattle's police or media organizations for Asian community members? Oh, so we reached out to uh, community partners, community services like the uh, Chinese Information Service Center or the CISC, um, they seemed just as surprised as we did and folks in the media did about the home invasions and wish that they had been given a heads up sooner. 
These kinds of organizations work as a connection between people in the communities they serve to provide things like mental health, counseling, and sometimes housing. So they're primed to provide services for these victims or, or help. Um, after we spoke with them, they talked about wanting to address that disparity, that disconnect between the police um, and what they can provide head on. When we started to hear as a newsroom that this might be a pattern, um, there was a sense like we want to track this down. We want to report it as soon as possible. But, you know, my impression was we weren't getting a clear picture from police until they decided to hold this press conference. Um, But I do want to dig in here a little bit about what the Asian community in South Seattle might have been experiencing while this was going on. Gustavo, what kinds of additional barriers exist that can keep people in these communities from contacting police? These are people who maybe have English as a second language. Um, So there are potential barriers that come up in that just as a person who doesn't speak English as the first language Mm -hmm. or read English as the first language. Uh, The other part is that during our early reporting, we published that some immigrant communities often have complicated relationships with government elements like the police, which could impact how people readily want to reach out to, let's say, like SPD or, or King County. At a recent lecture at Seattle University, Knight Soar, who does community relations services with the U.S. Department of Justice, kind of pushed back on that narrative. These 14 people did. He wanted to make sure, make it clear that people aren't easy victims or frozen in their victimhood. Um, that's something that I really wanted to emphasize. Uh, we also spoke to Connie So, a professor of American ethnic studies at the UW, who lives in these neighborhoods. Her mom passed away now, but she also shares that her mom said that these kinds of crimes were often part of the conversation with other neighbors years before this happened. Mm. Um, There were previous instances. There's a history of this happening before, um, but it was within the Asian American community and not necessarily people outside of the Asian American community coming into into the situation. Considering all the victims were Asian American, the Seattle Police Department has still hasn't come forward with like a formal accusation of a hate crime or a hate charge in to any of the people who are involved in this in this case. Ashley, what do we know about the people that were committing these burglaries? How are they finding families to target? Yeah, so when it comes to finding the victims that they're targeting, we have this picture of what, you know, their victim profile is. Um, We know there's been speculation by police about potential connections to casinos. Some of the victims, you know, we spoke with did play at casinos in the county. There's a bunch of these small casinos kind of dispersed in the county that I wasn't aware of until I did this reporting. Um, So there's that, that speculation, that item. But we do know that it appears that people were specifically targeted. In regards to the people that were committing these burglaries, some of the men accused of taking part of the break-ins have been accused of other violent crimes, such as animal cruelty, attempting to, you know, harm an ex-partner in a drive-by shooting, um, the one person who really stands out from the rest is TJ, who was 16 when he was arrested and is the youngest of this group. So as you mentioned, Ashley, multiple people have now been arrested in connection with these burglaries. Two of these suspects are brothers, and that is TJ, the 16-year-old whom you just mentioned, and a 24-year-old named Jaquan. Gustavo, you spoke with one of their family members in Rainier Beach. What did she tell you about TJ and Jaquan? So we only spoke about her teenage son. Uh, I was invested in learning more about how a teenage kid gets caught up in all this. She says he was a good kid, homeschooled by grandma while she worked. Um, His dad had died a while back as well. Uh, During the pandemic, he was actually well-adjusted to going school from home. Um, 
But when he started high school, that's when things changed. What was it about high school or the neighborhood that she talked about that she believes may have helped push TJ towards crime? She said to me, quote, it's just the neighborhood us black people live in and the poverty we're going through that when kids get together, it just turns out bad. So there were some what she perceived as negative influences happening in her teenage son's life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's a fair assessment of the neighborhood, Gustavo? I've only been here for less than a year. The past few months, I've been spending some time listening to community grassroots organizers and folks from the Safeway parking lot to community passageways to barbers who grew up in the Rainier Beach neighborhood. And we know that redlined neighborhoods like in Rainier Beach are prime grounds for gentrification, or you could also call it redevelopment. For as many housing programs, people are still falling through the cracks and pushed out of a home are being priced out of a home. At the same time, you have a neighborhood that for decades has been sounding the alarm that drugs and guns are being pushed into there with little to no response from the city or the police meeting the neighborhood where it's at or where they're asking for. I spoke to Dominique Davis from Community Passageways. He's the CEO. Uh, he mentioned, you know, people have been talking about this for a while now, for decades, that this is like, hey, this is an issue. Like, you know, we should address this. And nobody's really paying attention. He wasn't specifically speaking about TJ, but, you know, I, I think what his analysis can provide is it's kind of an understanding of this of this situation. Mm. Like we only pay attention when something gets to an acute emergency, like there is a series of burglaries, for example, and a kid like TJ gets caught up in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should say that, like, you know, there's there's also a very strong and focused push to address this from these community organizations. Um, You know, the one thing that I just driving through the neighborhood, just checking it out, checking out the spots, uh, there is a very um, vibrant, uh, there's a vibrant food scene. There's a lot of different communities there. Um, It's exciting to stand on one, to look at one corner and see like six different like local mom and pop shops of restaurants or or grocers and, and doing their, and doing their thing. I thought that was exciting about that neighborhood. Yeah. How are things going now, Ashley? Have the break-ins in South Seattle targeting Asian communities stopped? Well, there was a similar attempted home invasion in Auburn in October where these masked men, you know, in similar fashion to these other home invasions, were kicking up in the front door of this home and shouting, Seattle police, um, which is exactly what happened in the case of a source that I spoke to, one of the victims. Um, But in this instance, as video posted to social media shows, the people inside were armed and they fired at the burglars before they managed to make it inside. So it's hard to say if these break-ins have stopped completely, but we do know that Seattle police are still investigating. And what work is being done either by police or community members to keep more of this from happening? So definitely for sure. There's a professor at Seattle University. His name is Chris Koa, Christopher Koa. You know, starting, I think, last week, he started bringing together a couple different people from like federal representatives, state representatives of the law when it comes to hate crimes or crimes that tra- targeting certain community members. And at the same time, he also brought in community groups together all into one room to provide this kind of lecture or this conversation really about how do how do we talk about these kinds of things? How do we address crimes that target specific communities? Chris is also looking forward to, um, you know, trying to define what safety means in these situations. It was mentioned in the story that, like, you know, Chris was kind of unsatisfied with how the police kind of gave him the, the guideline and how to navigate maybe a potential home break in. Um, his goal is to kind of figure out, okay, so what do I do? You know, it doesn't seem like this, the police, what they're providing is that comprehensive or helpful. Um, so he's trying to go out and find the resources and connect to people in ways that 
um, you know, are trying to address this problem. The other part about this is, again, those community organizing groups, um, right? We mentioned community passageways, but there's so many other people. And it's not even just nonprofit organizations. It's just like uh, barbers, uh, people in the community talking to other people about how to stay safe, how to deescalate, how to, how to work through these things. There's definitely like a push to create an emphasis of like building connections that exist outside of just like a cell phone, right? Um, more gen- genuine human relationships, which I think we all have had a hard time trying to kind of understand how we work through that, especially after the pandemic. Yeah. You know, when I spoke with violence interruption workers in Los Angeles during the pandemic, that was their number one thing was they felt like the breaking of community bonds because of the lockdowns was just exacerbating the way that violence could overtake situations and people living on their cell phones and um communicating only that way was just making things worse. And I think that that's something that we really need to continue to watch, like how people are able to occupy third spaces in communities, how people are able to um, build connections is so important to stopping violence before it happens. Um, Ashley, how are the victims who experienced these terrible, violent break-ins doing today? You know, the victims I spoke with my impression was that they're still afraid, still changed by what happened to them. Um, one man I spoke with, he bought a gun, um, you know, after his parents in their home and then his home were both targeted in the same night. Him and his wife for that first month, you know, took turns sitting in this upstairs room overlooking their driveway just overnight, just making sure that their family was safe. Um, So they've really made major changes in regards to their vigilance. Um, They've, you know, they took down this cherry blossom tree in their front yard that they had um, just because they wanted their neighbors to be able to see their front door better. So these crimes appear to have left big marks on these people's lives. Before we go, I want to kind of zoom out a little bit to some broader themes that I think are underlying what we're talking about here. And that takes me to earlier this year when Naomi Ishisaka at the Seattle Times highlighted a tension that some people feel in this story. There's this need to stand in solidarity with crime victims and to recognize their pain and the absolute top priority of keeping people safe. There's also, however, this worry that you don't want to sensationalize crime in the coverage of it or see the city fall back on old models of over-policing or mass incarceration in response. Gustavo and Ashley, I know you've been reflecting on this in your coverage. Do you have any final thoughts on this? Uh, Ashley and I were talking a lot about this story when we were kind of working on it together. One of the things we talked about was the this idea that like we don't we don't have to exist in dualities or in a binary, that there is a spectrum of belief when it comes to how you acknowledge this conversation and you can acknowledge every part and it still holds valid for everyone's life, lived experience. Like, um, and I think when we were reporting through this story, like the, from my, in my head, my North Star has always been like, you have to take into picture the totality of like this whole, this whole big picture thing, right? Like one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot was, and I, and I think I've mentioned this to Ashley a lot was like, what are the tropes that we're touching on here? Are we perpetuating any? Are we having a honest conversation? Are we just reporting on the truth? in, Or are we reporting honestly in, in some of these instances? Um, but yeah, Ashley, I don't, I don't know. What do you think? 
No, I agree completely. And I feel like those conversations were really helpful because I don't want to sensationalize everything, anything, you know, because that, that can happen. But at the same time, I want to be honest and truthful and really convey the pain that this causes in all communities for these, you know, for, you know, the, the family members of those that are accused of these crimes to the victims. Um, but I think it comes down to being nuanced and just sticking to the truth as much as you can. Well, like Gustavo said, keeping all of those other pieces that are at play in mind as we do this reporting. Ashley Huruko and Gustavo Sagrero, thank you very much for joining me. Sure thing. Thank you so much for having us. And you can read their full report on our website, KUOW.org. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m., Monday through Thursday, or anytime online at KUOW.org.